Hi, and welcome to this installment of our New Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, Columbia's School of the Arts, Columbia University Press, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Associate Professor of Film and Media Studies at Columbia's School of the Arts, Nico Baumbach's book, Cinema, Politics, Philosophy. First, we'll hear Nico speaking about his book at the panel, and then I'll bring you my interview with Associate Professor of Film and Media Studies and Director of Undergraduate Studies in the Film and Media Studies program at Columbia's School of the Arts, Rob King. Um, Thank you very much, Rob. and I, I wanted to thank also just the, the Heyman Center and, and Emily in particular for, for organizing this event. Um, uh, also, uh, Debashri Mukherjee, who I guess is, is, couldn't be here today, but proposed this event. Um, uh, and I also um, think I want to thank uh, everybody here <laughs> next to me. Um, <laughs> James, Bruno, and Homé, I'm, I'm uh, really uh, grateful that you're taking eight minutes to respond to this <laughs> and um, also a bit uh, intimidated. Um, uh, so I'm going to say a few words about the book, maybe somewhat generally, um, uh, to give you maybe some idea about it um, and then turn things over to um, uh, um, the people to my right. Um, uh, so this book focuses on um, three thinkers, Alan Badiou, Jacques Ranciere, and Giorgio Agamben, three living continental philosophers, all in their 70s or 80s now, and what they say about cinema. Um, and in some ways, I think these guys feel a little bit like a kind of end of the line of a certain tradition, maybe, of, of European masters thinker, master thinkers. Um, and it could be that it's just as well that this tradition is, is coming to a close. These, these um, typically white male master philosophers who function as sort of oracles um, need perhaps to be replaced by new forms of intellectuals, and more diverse, less objects of cultish followings. Um, and I would say for myself that the transference toward certain proper names is, is something I've never been able to entirely escape. <coughs> Uh, but maybe something worth pushing back on. Um, on the other hand, these figures are um, people who have remained of great interest to me and have put a certain kind of pressure on my own thought, and that was something I felt I needed to account for in this book. They are each, albeit in different ways, uh, invested in thinking equality, a speculative, affirmative thought that resists the reduction of everything to information. Uh, and I think that this remains a necessary and important challenge to many of the kinds of thinking that, that we see replacing this tradition of European theory and philosophy, not only in film studies, but more broadly in the kinds of philosophy and theory that we see more and more of in the humanities that in some cases has turned back toward more empirical research and localized solvable problems um, with uh, accompanying more, uh, uh, more essentialist conceptions of human nature. Uh, meanwhile, where traditions of continental thought seem more trendy now, it is often in a return to romanticism, to new materialisms and vitalisms toward metaphysics in a way from what we could broadly call critical theory. Um, 
And so these thinkers represent, for me at least, the continuation of a certain tradition of theory. And my book is in part a defense of that tradition, but also with certain fundamental differences. So these thinkers are all in a relation to Marxism, uh, but to use the terms of Stuart Hall, it's a kind of Marxism without guarantees. They do not accept Althusser's conception of Marxist science as a discourse without a subject. Uh, they are not deconstructionists rejecting any possibility of truth and affirmation. And unlike someone like Foucault, for example, power is not the operative term here. What's fundamental in each case is a certain distance from power or perhaps a suspension of it. One thing that is crucial for me is that none of them abandon critique, and yet at the same time, none of them see ideological critique as primary. In regards to cinema, the question for each is the possibility of what Deleuze once called ideas in cinema. Not simply how films repeat imaginary ideological content, or indeed how they expose it, but what they do with it. It's not that cinema or art is not ideological, but that insofar as it makes a certain kind of claim on philosophy, it is not reducible to ideology. For Badju, uh, truth is the central term. Today, lots of people seem to be blaming this tradition of French philosophy for undermining truth. Uh, but one of Badju's points would be that none of these people take truth very seriously. Um, for Badju, truth is not fact or knowledge. It is contingent, precarious. It is that which alters the question of the possible. It is that which says something exists that can't be reduced to what he calls bodies and languages. For him, art, along with science, politics, and love are domains of truth. Philosophy is then invested not in describing the way things are, though this necessarily plays some role, but in beginning from the instances where we see something that doesn't fit into the way things are, that makes possible the thought of the existence of other possibilities. The truth of cinema for Badju is the way it, in specific instances, rests something specific of value from, from its messy raw material made up of common images, the ideological indicators of our time. Jacques Rancière was born three years after Badiou in 1940 um, and was also a student of Althusser, uh, though after May 68, he dramatically rejected Althusserism, Althusserianism. For Rancière, I'd say the primary concept is equality. His rather simple sounding proposition is that equality is not a goal to be attained, but a presupposition to maintain in all circumstances. This is Ranciere's central gambit, to begin always from equality and not from where it doesn't exist. What this means is a certain kind of challenge to the assumption of the inevitability of power and inequality that so often marks analysis that claims to take an egalitarian position. There's still a Marxist dimension to his work, but he makes us question why the analysis of class so often seems to not only reproduce, but make inevitable the class structure that is insisted upon as the condition of possibility for thought. For Ranciere, what is polit political is when we do not conform to our class position. The importance of art or cinema in particular is the ability to suspend relations of hierarchy. For certain kinds of critical theory, it is the hierarchical system that's the truth and not the suspension of it. The suspension is an illusion. Rigorous theory in this logic becomes about doubling down on the inevitability of inequality and you always win the game when you take this position. For Ranciere, on the contrary, and in this sense, like Badiou, the, the emphasis is always on the shift, uh, in a shift in the terrain of the possible, or what Ranciere has called the distribution of the sensible. 
the way sensible experience gets shared and divided or partitioned. For Agamben, we might say the key concept is singularity or better yet, potentiality. In relation to cinema, the concept is gesture. But gesture is a way for him to talk about the relation between singularity and potentiality at the level of sounds and moving images. In a different way from Ranciere, there's a, uh, a way to, um, in a way different from Ranciere, this is a way to emphasize that which is not countable or subsumable, forms of life that are not re reducible to what Guy Debord calls spectacle. For each of these figures, I focused on doing something with their own texts as a way of working through certain problems or questions in relation to the politics of cinema and the role of philosophy. I don't have many film examples, and I have not focused much on commentary on their work, nor do I focus on biography or try to read and acknowledge everything they wrote. I try to produce a version of them that is faithful to the letter of the text, but perhaps at a certain distance from some of the ways they've been more commonly read and in some cases in their own reading of themselves. For Agamben, for example, I say almost nothing about Homo Soccer, the work of his that has received by far the most attention, or for that matter, the concepts of bare life and the state of exception that, that have been taken up by so many people. And I've tried to wrest Agamben away from his Heideggerian side a bit and respond to the aspects of his work that are most interesting to me, taking him more as a reader of Walter Benjamin, a way to think Benjamin today. Benjamin wrote this one essay in the 1930s that gets endlessly evoked to talk about art in relation to technology and the way that technological reproduction undermines the notion of the unique or original work, uh, this endless fascination with the question of authenticity in the copy. But I don't think that's the most interesting part of his work, and I think Agamben brings out a more interesting Benjamin invested in the suspension of the relation between cause and effect in means without ends, which is how Benjamin defines critique. I've also used Ranciere to think, um, to rethink uh, the question of ideology, which may, be, which may seem somewhat heretical. The standard story is that Ranciere was a dutiful and orthodox student of Althusser, embracing wholesale his Marxist structuralism until he broke from Althusser, repudiating ideology critique and the traditions of Marxist reading derived from Althusser. I argue that there's a more interesting story to tell that allows us to see Ranciere as continuing the question of critique of ideology, but rewriting um, it in a way from the point of view of equality. Meanwhile, I use Badiou to rethink Deleuze. Um, Deleuzeans don't uh, usually like Badiou very much, but I want to say in this book that in certain respects, Badiou is more faithful to Deleuze's project um, in relation to cinema than so much of what we see in Deleuzean film philosophy today. And this is related to the, how, how the book is very much an intervention to the history of film theory and current debates about cinema studies. Um, and part of this is how Deleuze, uh, I think once completely ignored by American film studies, has become quite trendy today. Um, Back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there was this thing called film theory. Um, it's a thing I discovered with great interest as an undergraduate, a language for how to think about films as coded forms of signification. And this idea of theory, which extended beyond th film, tended to combine Marxism and psychoanalysis through French structuralism and post-structuralism. And I'd say its dominant project was ideology critique. When I was an undergraduate, Deleuze's books on cinema had already been translated into English for over a decade, 
but everyone ignored them because no one knew what to do with them. In Deleuze, there was no critique, no reading of cultural content or context, no interest in psychoanalysis or semiology. Uh, these were deeply auteurist books that were also metaphysical, centered around Bergson's conception of the image. Today, a couple decades later, Deleuze is everywhere, but nobody goes back and looks at the relation of Deleuze to 70s film theory, when despite um, Deleuze's uh, different orientation and his rejection of Lacanian Althusserian film theory, he was reading all of this 70s film theory and, and using it for his own ends. Um, in the interest of time, I'll end by saying something briefly about the cent central question, which is what makes cinema political? Um, and it may seem like a simple question, but I think it's a difficult question. And I account for part of the difficulty of my book uh, in terms of the difficulty of the question. Um, the most familiar approach focuses on political content, the level uh, of representation and narrative. Film theory in opposition to this has tended instead to focus on form. It's not just a question of whether the government is represented as good or bad in the film, but the language of the images and how the spectator is positioned in relation to them. The most familiar version of the story says all films are ideological, reproducing an imaginary relation to the world, but they become political when they become reflexive and when they make you aware of the level of representation through formal means that undermine the dominant language of cinema. I think we still see this, in, for example, in art museums all the time, somehow the return to the materiality of the work the mark of the body or the institutions behind them is supposed to be uh, a certain kind of evidence that we see critique at work and therefore a justification for the political efficacy of the artwork. For the philosophers I write about, about in this book, this kind of political modernism isn't a very satisfying answer either. And for all of them, politics, I think, is, is contingent, but nonetheless, the question of politics is always necessary at some level. It needs to be thought and this is the role of philosophy, but to be thought is also to be constructed. Films make a claim on philosophy not because they are simply against capitalism or for democracy, but because they create some new kind of configuration or relation or suspend in some interesting way our habitual relations to images in the world. It wouldn't be wrong to say that the politics of films or artworks that philosophy needs to respond to are the ones that challenge our ways of thinking about how films or artworks are political. Now, we'll hear my interview with Associate Professor of Film and Media Studies, Rob King. I'm here with Rob King, Associate Professor of Film and Media Studies. Thank you so much for speaking with me this morning. Thank you. Um, so I thought we would start by talking about what Nico said at the panel is the central question of his book. Um, what makes cinema political? And I was wondering if you could speak a bit about how cinema has been perceived as political in the past, and then maybe how you think Nico's book is engaging with these ideas and reconsidering what makes film political. Sure. I mean, I, I think that there are a number of different ways in which film has been thought of or might be thought of as political. Um, you know, when we when we think of the this idea of like political film or the politics of film, uh, you know, one level of this it would be propaganda, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, another would be you know just films that are somehow about politics or films that are about political issues. 
uh, one could think here of a filmmaker like you know, Ken Loach, for example, and uh, you know, a movie like I, Daniel Blake, uh, about you know, the issue of workers' benefits in, in England. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and I think that these are the ordinary ways in which we tend to think of like, uh, political film, you know, films that are propagandistic in some way, or films that are about politics in terms of their plot, in terms of their content, and so on and so forth. But there's another way of thinking about the politics of film, and this would be to think about the, the form of film, mm-hmm. uh, where we're talking about formal, aesthetic, stylistic issues, and so on and so forth. Now, that might be the, the least obvious aspect of the politics of film uh, that immediately comes to mind, uh, but in point of fact, it was the most prominent way in which the politics of film uh, was discussed uh, during uh, film theory or during the, the moment of film theory from the 1960s through, in particular, uh, the 1970s. And so I think in order to understand what Professor Baumbach's book is doing, uh, we need to understand really how the politics of film was understood and addressed in that earlier moment of film theory in the 1960s and 70s, because it's really that moment that his book is in some ways engaging with, uh, in some ways seeking, uh, I think, to to really go beyond as well. Mm -hmm. So when we think about what is the politics of film form, I, I think the issues here concern how film as a medium positions the viewer in relation to what is seen, mm. uh, and how aspects of film form shape that relation between the viewer, the viewing subject, and what is seen. And there are certain obvious instances that, that could come to mind here that concern film style. Does a film, for example, objectify women? Mm. Right? And that's a matter of film style. Right? That's a matter of how uh, the female protagonists in a film are framed within the movie above and beyond what they're actually doing in the movie as characters in the film. Uh, Another issue would be to think about how film positions the viewer as kind of uh, master of what is beheld, uh, this kind of fixed centre around which uh, everything can be seen, Mm -hmm. in much the same way as Renaissance perspective is understood as kind of fixing the viewer in a relation vis-a-vis the, you know, the represented scene in a painting. The, all of the lines of perspective kind of cohere to centre the viewer in terms of what is seen. Mm-hmm. And this idea of a, of a, of a centred viewer in line with you know, Renaissance ideals of... Uh, Cartesian ideals of the, you know, of the individual as a, as a subject, as a coherent fixed point, it's very central, I think, to... Uh, to film theory in the 1970s, Mm -hmm. Uh, this sense in which uh, film form helps to position the individual as as a subject, really, in relation to what is seen. And so, you know, if we're thinking about the politics of film form in that way, or the politics of film, rather, in that way, then the question becomes, well, you know, how do we challenge this? You know, how do we undermine the ideological effects of that? 
um, the bourgeois effects as it would once be framed, or the dominant effects as it would now uh, be framed, or the hegemonic effects, and so on and so forth. And the answer is to, to challenge the language of film, mm. uh, you know, to, to bring these operations to mind, uh, to produce a kind of knowledge effect about how uh, ideology is embedded in the form of film itself. Uh, this has been described as a political modernist project within film theory of the 1970s. Modernist because it's seeking to challenge the classical codifications of film language, the ordinary language of film, as it were. Political modernist because it's seeking to do this for political ends, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, to challenge the hegemonic operations of film. And so film theory of the 1970s, not only did it bring these operations to attention, but it also privileged films and filmmakers that accomplished these ends. Hence, for example, the investment in filmmakers like Jean-Luc Godard mm -hmm. uh, you know, during the 1970s. So that's, you know, I, you know, hence also I think this, uh, you know, th this insistence on, uh, you know, a kind of Brechtian-informed film, like, well, you know, a Brechtian-informed film theory that sought to distance the viewer from these ideological effects, from these ordinary ideological effects. Mm -hmm. That's really, I think, what Nico is engaging with, and, and that's what he's, he's trying to critique and to go beyond. That legacy of political modernist film theory really fell out of favor as we moved from uh, the, beyond the 1970s. It was seen as too totalizing. Mm. Um, it was critiqued as grand theory and was replaced by a, a host of piecemeal approaches, piecemeal theory as it's sometimes been called. Uh, but I think what Nico's book wants us to see is that in moving away from grand theory, mm. that part of the risk is that film theory today has lost that political charge that once was so prevalent in the 1970s. Mm. He wants to return to the question of politics in his book, but he wants to do it in a, in a very different way. I see. Right, so... When we talk about the film theory of the 60s and 70s, mm -hmm. the main concepts there are moving away from traditional film language and moving towards a very po political way of thinking about film and its uses. Right, to, to break the system. Uh, and I think hence like, there's a very strong investment in, uh, in forms of avant-garde filmmaking, in forms of what was uh, often called during this period counter-cinema. Mm -hmm. uh, counter cinema being forms of cinema that that reject the ordinary operations of mainstream filmmaking. Right, right, which interacts in a way with the culture that was going on, um, certainly in America at that time. You no, know, the counterculture movement, things like that. Right, yeah. absolutely, and it, it, I mean it's also I think one of the interesting legacies of or interesting aspects of nineteen seventies film theory was that. It was, in a certain respect, anti-pleasure, you know, uh, right. anti the, the conventional pleasures of film going. Uh, these were to be rejected, you know, to be exposed in terms of their ideological entanglements, in terms of their ideological implications. Uh, it was, um, 
you know, it was a, a form of film theory that sought to counter the forms of pleasure that you know, bring many you know bring many people into film studies in you know in the first place. Paradoxically, I think. Right, and so um, you would say that. Uh, the pendulum sort of swung after the 1970s the other way against this idea of grand theory um, back towards, I think one of the panelists putting is having fun in film. Yeah, well, I, I, mean, I wouldn't say necessarily having fun. You know, I don't think it's... <laughs> um, the, uh, I mean, obviously, it's nice to have fun, but I, I don't think it should be seen as some kind of scholarly mandate. Sure, uh, sure. But, um, <laughs> I, 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 I think that, that you're right, that, and that's in, in part what Nico's book tracks in mm. the opening chapter, uh, This the, the legacy of apparatus theory, as it was often called mm. uh, in the 1970s, was something to really be, something to move away from. It's too totalizing. Mm -hmm. It's too prescriptive. It generates uh, endless articles that effectively are saying the same thing about film after film after film after film. Right. It's a kind of no way out form of theory. Um, and I think there was there came to be seen as a, a great dissatisfaction with that, mm -hmm. uh, despite the you know, the political project that undergirded it. Uh, so I think that what Professor Baumbach's book is trying to do is to to return us to the question of of the politics of film, but to do so in a in a really massively different way mm -hmm. a way that that doesn't fit any of the levels that I that I talked about earlier that's not talking about your know, films whose content is is political films that are about political issues mm -hmm. uh, that is not kind of exposing in uh, Brechtian fashion the political entanglements of film form mm -hmm. uh, but is asking us to to think the politics of film in a in a new way uh, in relation to currents in continental philosophical thought you know, that, have, that have emerged uh, in the period since the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Right, so this way, um, could you say a little bit more about the, the way in which he's asking us to rethink the political or um, ways that you see his book interacting and providing a... a maybe a possible methodology or parts of a methodology for people to work with as they move and think about film? Right. I, I think that Professor Baumbach's book is, is a very important and canny book in, in, in respect to those issues. Mm -hmm. Important because it serves as an introduction to a number of philosophers mm -hmm whose relevance to film theory has not fully been plumbed, I think. Mm -hmm. Jacques Rancière, of course, uh, right. Alain Badiou, uh, Giorgio Agamben. But it's a canny book because it, it, it doesn't just introduce the reader to these philosophers' thoughts, uh, but it, it puts that introduction in the service of the agenda that I've been talking about, right. the, the reclamation of politics 
to the practice of film theoretical thought today. Mm -hmm. uh, he wants to counter Professor Baumbach the depoliticization of film theory, uh, as well as introducing readers to the relevance of certain thinkers for uh, for that project. Right. So, what does it mean to to get to to your question? What does it mean then for film to be political uh, in the sense explored in the in this book? Well, I think that for Professor Baumbach, although he he considers uh, Rancière, Gambon, Badieu. In many respects, I feel that Jacques Rancière is perhaps the key, uh, the key figure here. Mm -hmm. And it's significant in that respect that Rancière gets the first chapter. Mm. Uh, because I think that the, you know, the, the, the legacy of, of, or the, I think that the Rancière's thought introduced in that first chapter helps inform the, the, the book as a whole. Rancière has this concept uh, that he calls the distribution of the sensible, mm. uh, which refers to you know, what can be seen, mm -hmm. what can be heard, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps more pertinently, who gets to be seen, who gets to be heard mm -hmm. within a given society, within a given culture, and, and so on and so forth. And what Rossier is interested in are ways of challenging that distribution of the sensible. Mm -hmm. So the, those things and those who cannot be seen, cannot be heard, actually enter into the distribution of the sensible. I see. Uh, so a transformation in our habitual modes of seeing, our habitual modes of engaging with the world uh, that open out onto what ordinarily has been unseen or who ordinarily have been unseen mm -hmm. in the name ultimately of equality. Right. And that's the guiding principle and premise for Rancière's thought. And that I think ultimately is what is informing uh, Professor Baumbach's work here as well. Uh, the, the stress is laid on cinema's capacity to perturb our habitual modes of seeing and thinking, to produce new possibilities for thought, mm -hmm. uh, to produce new ways of, of seeing. Uh, cinema is, is, a, is a way of seeing, of course, mm -hmm. and as a way of framing aesthetic experience, it can provide the resources for imagining new forms of collectivity as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's, that then is central to, to how uh, Professor Baumbach is fra framing this issue of the, the politics of film. I, I mean, I don't know if this is uh, a useful parallel, but it puts me in mind of the, of, um, the article, The Subaltern Speaks, so mm -hmm. new ways of yeah. different people hearing it or being heard. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that, that parallel is, 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 uh, is a very pertinent one. Um, I think that you know, this book, however, is, is not prescriptive mm -hmm. uh, in the same way that, that for example, Rancière's thought is not prescriptive. 
mm. uh, in the sense of offering a guide you know, as to how one can accomplish this in, in film, right? Mm. Um, it's, you know, these issues of altering the distribution of the sensible are not, I think, to be accomplished uh, simply through what we ordinarily think of today as like inclusivity or a politics of inclusivity, although that's, you know, it is to say that abso they absolutely could not be accomplished through a politics of exclusivity, right? right. Um, I, I think a good example of, of what uh, Professor Baumbach you know, has in mind in these respects would be, and it's not a cinematic example, though it is a moving image media example, would be uh, cell phone camera footage mm. of uh, police brutality and murder uh, and the connection of this to Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. I mean, here we are talking about a, a work that is taking place at the level of the distribution of the sensible. Mm. Right, that what what is happening with these with these videos is that they are making visible a wrong, right? right? Um, and you know, and I think that that then would fall within the orbit of what Professor Baumbach is thinking about, and fall within the orbit of this uh, this axiom of equality mm -hmm. uh, that ultimately guides. His use of Rancière in, in this book. So you would say that maybe another thing that this book could possibly do is expand the idea of the cinematic, possibly to include things that are that are visible. Or maybe I'm taking it a step too far. Is he limiting himself just to cinematic examples, or could we also look at things like this cell phone camera footage, or things that aren't explicitly framed as cinema? Yeah, I, I don't think that the implications of uh, Professor Baumbach's work are in any way limited to the medium of film. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of uh, exceptional passages in the work that explore how you know, some of the philosopher's ideas that he deals with can be exemplified um, by, uh, by, other, by other media. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I just mentioned um, the uh, Black Lives Matter example, which he cites in, in reference to uh, in the chapter on Rancière. Right. Uh, there's also a, a wonderful section towards the back of the book in which he explores how Agamben's concept of the justice can be exemplified in online gifs or gifs mm -hmm. um, that. <laughs> Um, that the, these also provide... An, the, so he is using new media as examples, and he's finding you know, um, ways in which new media participate in precisely these processes of cinematic thought mm -hmm. that need not be limited to cinema alone. I mean, I think that you know, his interest in, in how cinema thinks and how cinema allows us to think and how cinema allows us to think uh, from a vantage point of the equality of all is not ultimately a question that is limited to cinema. Right, yeah, I'm struck by this um, in the, 
in the field of musicology, which is my home field, there's a lot of work done on the internet and um, these exact types of of uh, media, mm-hmm. GIFs, GIFs, um, Vine videos, you know, people shooting things on their cameras, uh, Snapchat videos, and the ways in which sound is purposed. And so it just it oh, it's, yeah right. it seems to me that this book might have something to say to us about that mm-hmm. um, in the on the level of the distribution of the sensible and who gets to be heard now that we have all these different ways of interacting with recording r- recorded sound and recorded image right right yeah no that's that's interesting so the, the I mean when you're talking about how sound is being purposed in those or repurposed in those instances what kind of things do you do you mean by that um I, it's not my area of expertise, but I know that um, scholars who work on things like popular music and viral videos are, are looking at the ways that people are interacting with music and sound um, spreading virally on the internet and seeing how that generates a type of interaction with music mm. um, that is very different from any sort of interaction with music we've seen before. Right. Uh, Perform- live performance or performance recordings like CDs and albums, and now there's a totally different way of experiencing sound that right. makes certain types of people audible. Right. Who wouldn't have been previously. No, that's that's interesting. Yeah. So so yeah, I look forward to introducing <laughs> or or speaking about this work with my colleagues who are interested in this virality and work on it in a much more sophisticated way than I've just summarized it for you. But, um, (laughs) but yeah, I thank you so much for speaking with me about this book, which, um, which has a lot, I think, to say to a lot of different disciplines. It's a really significant book. Um, not simply because it can serve as an introduction to the thought of Agamben, Badia, Rossier, uh, but because it it puts that introduction in the service of an agenda, this question of the, the politics of film, uh, that has in many ways receded from the forefront of film theoretical thinking, mm-hmm. and that uh, I think deserves to be, I mean, deserves always to be kept at the forefront. Right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Nico Baumbach's book, Cinema, Politics, Philosophy. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss James Zetzel's book, Critics, Compilers, and Commentators, an introduction to Roman philology, 200 BCE to 800 CE. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.